for 70 years. The coronation of a new king of England. Now, Charles Philip Arthur George of the House of Windsor will be crowned King Charles III of the United Kingdom and Commonwealth Realms at Westminster Abbey on Saturday, May 6th at 11 a.m. Anybody going to watch? No? Okay. I, didn't, I wondered if anybody would watch. Guess what? There are watch parties being formed all around the world to watch the coronation on Saturday, May 6th, okay? And this is apparently so, such a popular event to be able to watch that... Uh, Buckingham Palace has actually released an official watch party recipe that they call Coronation Quiche. So maybe you could try making Coronation Quiche, see if it's okay. You can find it online, so go ahead and do that if you want to. Well, friends, Coronation preparations for this event have been happening for eight months. And it's an elaborate ceremony. In su it's such a unique event that most alive today have never seen it. The last coronation of a monarch in England was the crowning of 27-year-old Queen Elizabeth on, on June 2nd, 1953. Now, what's unique about these, this event is that, and about a coronation is that it's not merely a political or civic event. It's actually, uh, if, if, you, if you see what happens as it unfolds, it's actually a service of Christian worship. It's held in a church. It's presided over by an archbishop. It is bathed in scripture. There are hymns sung by a choir. They celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the pinnacle moment of this ceremony is the anointing of the king or queen with holy oil. It's such a unique event. And this moment of the anointing is considered so sacred that they won't show it on television. Now, back in 1953, this is how it goes down, okay? Back in 1953, at the coronation of Elizabeth, as the guests and dignitaries grew silent, the queen sat in King Edward's chair. It's a throne that is over 700 years old. And four knights of the garter held a golden canopy over the throne to shield the eyes from view. And the archbishop then dips his finger in the holy oil and anointed the queen in the form of a cross as he said these words. Be thy hands anointed with holy oil. Be thy breast anointed with holy oil. Be thy head anointed with holy oil, as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, and as Solomon was anointed by, by, by king, by Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, so be thou anointed, blessed, and consecrated queen over the peoples, whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. You see, it is believed that the role of governing is a calling from God. A sacred task that the monarch has been set apart for, consecrated, given an authority that's derived from God and dependent upon God. Now, whether anyone today in secular England still believes that, not really sure. 
But what happens after this anointing is it's followed by a procession, a procession of lords and ladies, of dukes and duchesses as they head to the palace to sit on a throne in a show of divine power to rule. And friends, today our text describes another anointing, a consecrating of a king for a sacred task of ruling with divine authority over the entire cosmos. But this anointing has a bit of a shock. It doesn't happen in the hollowed halls of an abbey. In the, it doesn't happen in the grand chambers of a palace. It, it, the oil isn't applied by a priest. The procession afterwards isn't full of pomp and, and, and attended by dignitaries. And this king is not enthroned on a gilded chair. This king is anointed in private at a dinner party by a humble woman and her friends. He's led on a procession on a donkey. And his closest friends end up abandoning him, and he's enthroned on a cross. You see, in our study in the Gospel of John, we're now turning towards the cross. And, and, and when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which, if you remember, it's the seventh miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John, this was the last straw for the religious leaders. They wanted Jesus dead. But this is what he came to do, to be the one man who would die for the people. To be enthroned as the king in his death and resurrection and to fulfill all of God's promises to make a way for our redemption. But friends, the first step is that he must be anointed for his sacred task. And that's what the word Messiah means. If you know what the word Messiah means, it means anointed one. He must have a coronation. So this is what we're going to see in our text this morning. The humble anointing of Jesus and the triumphal procession into Jerusalem reveal to us the very heart of God. We see the goodness of Jesus that welcomes us to come to him. So open with me to John 12, right? Let's go to John chapter 12. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand because I'd love to have you get a copy of the Bible in your hand to read along with me and follow along. We're going to read this account of Jesus' coronation as king from John 12 verses 1 through 19. So let me read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. 
The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard uh, that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. I love that. And the irony of their statement there at the end uh, of the truthfulness of what they say. Now, this passage, friends, is filled with ironies and symbolism and deeper meaning that reveal the very heart of Jesus and what kind of king he is. So let's look in detail at this coronation that's happening. Uh, so let's, let's just jump right in here. Now, it's the weekend prior to Passover. So let me set a little bit of the stage here. It's an annual festival that celebrated the Israelites' release from bondage in Egypt. When the lamb's blood was painted on the door and God's people were saved as the angel of death swept over the land, killing all the firstborn sons. And now, just a week prior, Jesus is traveling back to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, and once again, I just love this, Martha's in charge, serving the dinner. She's got everybody seated just where she wants them, and she's got the dinner all going. And a dinner is held in Jesus' honor with Lazarus in attendance. Can you imagine this? Just fresh, raised from the dead. <laughs> and this man who had, people had seen walk out of the tomb, and all of the disciples were also there. And suddenly, at this dinner, something unexpected happens. In comes Mary, Lazarus' sister. And she breaks open a jar of perfume it was probably about 11 ounces of oil extracted from the root of a plant grown in India. Traveled all the way to Israel. Worth over 300 denarii, the text says, which is the equivalent of more than $50,000. She breaks open this jar and pours all of it on Jesus' feet. And wipes his feet with her hair. Friends, either Mary is incredibly wealthy, which is probably the case. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they probably had quite a lot of money. It's possible that this jar was a family heirloom passed down through the generations. It was so valuable, you wouldn't even want to touch it. Friends, think about what's happening here. Okay, just days before, Lazarus was dead and in the grave. Mary and Martha were stricken with grief. Jesus wept at the ugly reality of death. And then he displayed his power over death itself, raising Lazarus by simply calling his name. And now here, Mary shows her gratitude. She recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. Here was this wealthy and respectable woman pouring tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair. It was all at once a priceless gift and a humiliation. 
a sign of Jesus' worth and of her unworthiness. See, imagine Mary's humility at this moment. Friends, washing someone's feet in this culture in the first century was the role of a servant or a slave. This is why, okay, we're in John 12. Go to the very next chapter, which we're going to cover here in a few weeks. And John 13, Jesus washes his own disciples' feet and Peter attempts to stop him. It was that humiliating of a task. And what I find interesting about this is the disciples had to be taught to wash one another's feet. And here Mary does it on her own. She is this foil, this bright contrast to their dullness. I just love it. That she's an example of faith, an example of servanthood, an example of proper worship. Okay, friends, as a, as a Jewish woman in the first century, to to let down your hair from the typical braids and pinnings that your hair would have been in would have been shocking and somewhat scandalous at this moment, like a public a, a dinner with friends. It was a sign of humiliation in the best sense. It was a, a sign that she was in complete, humble surrender to Jesus as Lord. And this was proper worship. I just want you to see how this all unfolds, okay? This is her proper worship. She doesn't care how much it costs. She's going to break that jar to anoint Jesus. And friends, she doesn't care what people think. She is going to let down her hair to wipe his feet. Oh, dear friends, that we would worship Jesus with this kind of abandon, with this kind of sacrifice. No matter what it costs, no matter what other people think, we're going to bring him our gratitude and worship. See, friends, it's so symbolic. What, what the text says is that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And it's a symbol that her act of humility and love, that it extends far beyond this little moment. That, that this, the symbolism is that the reign of this anointed one will fill everything, everywhere, as one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of the entire cosmos. The scent of his authority and reign will fill everything. But I, I, as the text unfolds here, Judas has a huge problem with this. In verses 4 to 6, he complains that this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But John, okay, John's looking back with some hindsight on this. He, he reports that Judas has deceit in his heart, that he didn't really care for the poor. He was keeper of the money bag, and so he wanted an influx of cash so that he could help himself to some of the proceeds. And, and the Jewish leaders, they also have a problem with this. If you go down to verses 9 to 11... The Jewish leaders feel threatened by Jesus. They're jealous of these large crowds that are following him. They make plans not only to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus as well, because he's a walking, talking advertisement of Jesus' authority and power. Like he's the best advertisement out there. Here he is alive. We got to kill him too. You see, Judas and the Jewish leaders are both foils of Mary, the opposite of what she's doing. They embody the opposite of her response to Jesus. She embodies sacrifice and surrender, unlike Judas who expresses greed and selfishness. 
She gives everything. And he just wants a little slice of the pie. Mary embodies humility and trust. Unlike the Jewish leaders who express jealousy and unbelief. Rather than recognizing who Jesus is, they want to destroy him. See, and sandwiched right in between Judas's response and the Jewish leader's response are the only words in this account that we see that Jesus speaks in verses 7 and 8. Look at what he says. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Friends, we need to remember the purpose of anointing. It's to consecrate someone for a divine task. It's to set someone apart, to make a public confession of their calling to exercise divine authority, to speak God's own words, and to rule on God's behalf. But wait, okay, Jesus in, in what he speaks here, he's talking about his burial. See, in the ancient Jewish world, it was really common for families to spend extravagant amounts of money on spices and perfumes during burial, not only to mask the smell of decay, but also to uh, honor the dead. And so here's the irony of Jesus' anointing, the, the, the bold message that he's proclaiming. He is being consecrated for death. This is the coronation as king of Jesus. This is his coronation, but he is a king who will conquer and ascend to his throne by dying. To many people, this makes absolutely no sense. And, and what's fun about watching this story unfold, and as you see the Gospel of John, like so many others in the Gospel of John, Mary signaled more than she knew. She's coming in humble gratitude, and Jesus says, do you realize this is the coronation of my ascending to the throne when I'll be lifted up on the cross? Interestingly, if you, if you are familiar with the Gospels, there's a parallel account of this exact story in Mark 14. And in Mark 14, Mark says that it is this event of of, of, of these circumstances and Judas's, Jesus' sharp rebuke of Judas that prompts Judas to go to the Jewish leaders with a proposal to, to betray Jesus. The very next verse is, and then Judas went to the Jewish leaders and said, how much do you give me if I turn him in? This was the last straw for Judas. How could Jesus be king if he's dead? How can we go conquer everything if he's in the grave? This makes absolutely no sense. It was a dividing line, and it's a dividing line for so many today. How can his ascension to the throne be the humiliation of the cross? How can we worship a king who looks like a failure to the world? And the key to understanding this comes from what Jesus spoke, what his quotation that he makes in verse 8. If you're looking in your Bible, and I always encourage you, if you see a little letter or number in your Bible and there's footnotes, look at what quotations are made in the text. In verse 8, you'll see that there's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, when Jesus speaks. He's, he's, he's quoting a chapter of the Old Testament law about canceling debt. 
See, every seven years, if you go to Deuteronomy 15, every seven years, the Israelites were to cancel debts and to restore people who were crushed by financial burdens or who were estranged from each other because of the debts that they owed. And this chapter of Deuteronomy specifically calls God's people to be open-handed and generous with the poor, not tight-fisted and grumpy. It's a call to extend grace, a gift that people don't deserve. And it's not only a rebuke to Judas, who's only thinking about himself, it symbolizes what Jesus came to do. He came to cancel our debt. To cancel our debt of sin. This is why he refers to this passage. That he came to buy us back. To redeem and restore us. He came when we were needy. Crushed by the weight of our sin, estranged from God, he paid the price for you and for me when we were helpless and lost. He saved us by his grace. And so when the crowds, if you, if you see the story unfold here, when the crowds in the triumphal procession the next day shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, like Mary, are speaking better than they know. They're quoting Psalm 118 which is a messianic psalm. And they think they're, they're praising Jesus and saying, let's go conquer those Romans right now. Let's take care of business. But in fact, Jesus is doing something deeper, something more eternal. And John is so careful to note that he rode on a donkey. If you've ever wondered why, if you go to Zechariah chapter 9, which is the quotation of where that's from, it's a symbol of peace. In Zechariah 9, there's a prophecy about the peace that will come when God reaches out to save his people. And then this peace comes in an unexpected way through a king who is anointed, and this is what Jesus is describing, anointed to go to the cross and die to be the savior of the world, to cancel your debt. Friends, this reveals something. This whole passage reveals something about the very heart of God. Mary recognized it. She saw the tender heart of God when she saw Jesus and he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. She saw the awesome power of God when Lazarus came out of the grave. She recognized something of the holiness and glory and authority and anointing in Jesus. And so what does she do? She chooses to humble herself before him, to come to him with her most precious earthly possession, literally laying herself at his feet in gratitude and worship. She took this bold step of humiliating herself in front of others, trusting that Jesus would accept her, that he wouldn't turn her away. But I'll say, maybe we need to be honest with ourselves. Sometimes that, that, that might, this might give us pause. Could Jesus really accept me? And maybe you've felt that. When we think of the ugliness and shame of our sin or of, of what we've done or who we are, we, we, could, we could tremble at the authority and the, the power of the very Son of God, the one who could call Lazarus out of the grave with just his name. We might wonder how we could possibly approach such a king. There's a pastor and theologian named A.W. Tozer about 100 years ago. He captured this feeling really well in a classic book that's called The Knowledge of the Holy. Highly recommend it. And this is what Tozer says. 
He says, sin has made us timid and self-conscious, as well it might. Years of rebellion against God have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. He says, the captured rebel does not enter willingly the presence of the king he had so long fought, he had so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. But if he is truly penitent, he may come trusting only in the loving kindness of his Lord. In other words, how, you see, Tozer saying in light of the holiness and power and perfection of God, we have to come with humility and repentance. He says, if we would be welcomed as the prodigal was, then we must come as the prodigal came, which is desperate for God. And we might wonder, like the prodigal son did, if you remember the story, in the prodigal son, he comes back to his father's household and he wonders what the response is going to be. Will he be angry with me? Will he reject me? Will he treat me as a slave? Will he throw me away? But Tozer went on to write, Now someone who in spite of his past sins honestly wants to become reconciled to God may cautiously inquire, if I come to God, how will he act towards me? What kind of disposition has he? What will I find him to be like? The answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. The penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. And to the stranger, hospitable. Friends, this is what Mary realized. And what Judas and the Jewish leaders could not see. And this is why her humble act of gratitude and her worship become the coronation of the king of the universe. The anointing for his sacred task. The start of his march to the cross so that by his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection, we could be welcomed into the very presence of God purely by his grace, the very rebels who dare not stand in his presence except that we rely on his loving kindness towards us. We have nothing to offer. See, this is, I, I think Mary... <laughs> came to understand what I think we should properly call a fear of the Lord. A proper fear of the Lord. My, um, just a couple days ago, my daughter Annabelle asked me, we're like, sometimes we have little conversations before she goes to bed. Sometimes she's just delaying going to bed, and I'm sure some of you experience that. <laughs> she, turned, she turned to me and she said, Dad, what does it mean to fear God? And I, I said something like this. It's when we recognize how powerful and glorious and great God is, and we recognize how weak and pitiful and small we are, and then we wonder at God's kindness because we know we don't deserve it. Whew. 
See, sometimes I think when we talk about fearing God or when we think about who he is, or we look at his majesty, his glory, his power, his authority over all, that we fear, we, we think we're supposed to fear God like we fear a natural disaster or like getting in trouble with your boss or like getting an audit letter from the IRS. It's like we tend to fear a power greater than us or we think we, we need to fear a shame that could destroy us or an authority that could turn our lives upside down. You see, this kind of a fear, it's a kind of fear that drives us away. A fear that makes us want to hide or flee. It's a fear, it's the kind of fear of a sinner when the holy God shows up. It's like Adam and Eve who want to hide in the garden. But dear friends, let me share with you some good news. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, our fear of the Lord is now transformed into an invitation to know the goodness of God displayed in the Savior Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, um, who's a great preacher from uh, more than 100 years ago now, he said with, that without Christ, we could not draw near to God because of our sin. He, he once preached this. He said, if you don't know Christ, you will never come to God. Your fear must link itself with the goodness of God as displayed in the person of his dear son, or else it cannot be a seeking fear, a fear towards the Lord. It will be a fleeing fear. A fear that will drive you further and yet further away from God into greater and greater and deeper darkness and into dire destruction. There's a, a, an English theologian named Michael Reeves. He put it this way. He says, it's the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. Whew. This is what Mary felt. This is what she came to know. You see, I, Jesus, who's thinking of himself, or the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead, Mary had a fear of the Lord, a sense of the greatness of Jesus, a sense of the proper response that it was to surrender everything, to humble herself at his feet in worship, to not flee, but to draw near to him because of his greatness. To draw near and marvel at his goodness. That's what I want us to do. To marvel so much at the greatness and goodness of Jesus that we just want to come closer and closer. Knowing that we're only received by his grace. That we're welcomed into his presence as a pure gift. To celebrate his goodness and to see his goodness turn towards us. See, that's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to sing a, a new song that is called The Goodness of Jesus. And it's an invitation to come to him. To draw near to him, to lay our lives at his feet. So let's pray and then let's go to song and respond in worship. Lord, we, Lord Jesus, we come to your feet in worship now. I pray over my dear brothers and sisters here that 
we see what Mary has done, that it didn't matter what it cost, it didn't matter what people thought, she was going to worship you with her entire life, laying down her most precious things at your feet, her reputation even at your feet. Lord, I pray that that would be our hearts, that we would go forward this week in the coming months and years, that we would say we want to to worship you no matter the cost, no matter what people think, that our life is going to be about sitting at your feet in your presence purely by your grace. We want to know your goodness, Jesus. Teach us your goodness. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.